Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Brian Hamilton of Deerfield Academy, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. John Suval. He earned his PhD at the University of Wisconsin, has served as an editor of the papers of Andrew Jackson, and is currently working as a writer from his home in West Virginia, from which he joins us today to talk about his new book. It's called Dangerous Ground, Squatters, Statesmen, and the Antebellum Rupture of American Democracy. It came out this past summer from Oxford University Press, and you're going to want to check it out. Dr. Suval, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. It's delighted. I'm delighted to be here. Now, John, this is just simply the best work of political history that I've read in a really long time, and I'm super excited to hear about how you developed its arguments and, and all of that. But I, but I wonder if we might actually start conceptually. You know, this here is nominally a show about environment, and so let's talk about land. I noticed in the back of the book, in her enthusiastic blurb, historian Nancy Eisenberg says that your book reminds us that American democracy was as much about land, wealth, and the populist cant of opportunity as it was about voting rights. And I'm hoping you could expound on this a bit here at the outset, you know, because in the age of Jackson, you know, we history teachers are always trying to help our students see how how land somewhat starts to matter less to citizenship and democracy as this is this expansion of, of suffrage to all white men, regardless of landowning. And so, uh, you know, why do you think that might be a mistake? You know, wh- why should we attend first and foremost to land? Yeah, well, so uh, first, just to uh, give props to environmental history, because it's completely enriched our understanding of land as something living, uh, dynamic, not not merely something to conquer or uh, claim or commodify. Um in this book, land functions largely as political capital. Um, the uh, political force that uh, it centers on this book, what I call squatter democracy, which was a marriage of interests between Jacksonian Democratic politicians and squatters, that, that is settlers um, who lacked legal title to the land they occupied, um, and it, at the core of this of this marriage of interest was a quid pro quo that is uh, facilitating squatters' legal hold on their land in exchange for their political support. So this is uh, what Nancy Eisenberg uh, may be getting at: um, land and suffrage. Um, they weren't mutually exclusive; uh, they were actually two sides of of the same coin. Um, your point is a good one in that uh, part of the expanding suffrage was um, doing away with a minimal requirements to vote, that is to have a certain amount of property and uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, but um, land, so land holding elites were not the, the, the body politic uh, or the sort of base of the democracy. Um, it was folks who, in some cases, didn't have land, but out west, people went out west to acquire land, and uh, 
the Jackson uh, party did everything they could to facilitate their ownership of that land. And in so doing, they secured a, a very broad base of support. So some of these people who do this, you know, traveling west here are end up being branded or call themselves squatters. And, and they, you know, this, the term squatter you use in two different ways in the book. You know, we have squatters as characters, as, as actual people. And then also in, in, I think your memorable word here, as a fetish of politicians, squatters as fetish. Um, starting with the former, there's always this kind of paradox that hits me when I'm thinking about squatters, that th- those who identified this way um, or, or celebrated this way, that these were, these were literally lawbreakers. These were trespassers. These were violators of sacred rules of private property. And you know, even to put aside you know, the appropriation of native land and any sort of moral judgments that we might cast on them from today, squatters broke their own government's rules. <laughs> and so how can they become celebrated by politicians? You know, how, how did they get past the simple fact? Why, why did that fact stop mattering? Yeah, well, I think what's important to note is that it stopped mattering for Jacksonian Democrats. Uh, For the opposition party, uh, the anti-Jacksonians who became the Whig Party, uh, they continued to try to uphold uh, a degree of of orderly settlement of the West, um, largely exemplified by uh, Clay's American system, which saw manufacturing and farming growing in tandem um, and using revenue from public land sales to fund internal improvements, infrastructure, and that kind of thing. This uh, this Whig position harmonized, was in sync with uh, basically, you know, the first 50 years of, of the Republic um, in which politicians, whether they were Federalists or even Jeffersonians, uh, wanted westward development, westward uh, expansion to be a somewhat orderly process. There were big differences between the Federalists and Jeffersonians. Federalists kind of viewed land as a source of um, government revenue and speculative capital. Uh, Jefferson and and his allies were uh, very much aligned with small farmers or yeomen who they imagined peopling the continent from from, uh, sea to sea. Uh, but but even Jefferson and and his successors were very much about um, a, a sort of orderly process, and uh, that definitely included um, perfecting title before uh, one could uh, uh, claim a piece of land and certainly claim to be the rightful owner of that land. Um, there had been. Um, limited preemption laws. Preemption we'll talk about a lot in this in this uh, discussion. Uh, basically, uh, legal it, it sanctioned squatting in the sense that you could uh, occupy a piece of land first and then retroactively uh, pay for it and acquire the title. Uh, this was something that had been used on a limited basis, you know, for builders of grist mills uh, north of the Ohio River. Uh, farmers in Indiana, Illinois, Missouri, d- different different cases in different places, but it was always limited. And despite efforts to make it a general principle across the public lands, uh, at the national level, Congress would never go there. This changes with the rise of of the Jacksonian Democrats. Uh, Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri was was uh, really kind of the architect of the Democrats' uh, land program, preemption being at the center of it, and. When they passed the Preemption Act of 1830, which which uh, legalizes squatting throughout the public domain, 
this is a new a new dispensation, a new era that that was uh, really unthinkable pr- previously. So, and and I should mention um, one other thing that uh, the early statesmen, um, you know, the the politicians of the early republic saw squatters uh, as a serious problem in terms of uh, sparking conflict with with native peoples. And um, another core piece of the uh, Jackson agenda was Indian removal. It's very interesting, actually, preemption and Indian removal. The, the, the Those two laws pass in successive days in May of 1830. And it really is a one-two punch that signals a new day for uh, how the U.S. is going to to grow. So there's these there are the squatters that themselves are are pushing you know, the boundaries of settlement west into native land, and then there's also the, the and there are also reliable votes for Jacksonian Democrats. But there's also this, this this rhetorical squatter, this fetish you talk about that it was a a political creation of the Democratic Party of this era. And why was it so helpful as a means of of building and maintaining their coalition? Yeah, well, so. It's an important point and well phrased too, rhetorical uh, squatter, because really it was politicians who rebranded the squatter from a remote frontier scourge to um, to a patriotic pioneer, uh, central to America's rise um, and and growing might. So the, the rebranding was from say intruder to improver. Um, only later did squatters themselves begin to wear that term as a badge of honor based on the all of this rhetorical work that, that politicians were doing. The rhetorical squatter that, uh, that, that Democratic politicians never tired of, of lauding was a, a patriotic pioneer farmer, um, basically a yeoman, a little bit sort of more rough and tumble in the Jackson era. The, the squatter is the yeoman, you know, kind of contending against hostile elements to uh, forge a farm uh, uh, on the frontier uh, for his family, um, also functioning to defend the nation's vulnerable borders against Indians and um, imperial rivals. So there's an important class element here. The, this poor heroic squatter that the politicians are, are celebrating was sort of cast in a, a morality drama of sorts. Be the, the squatter being the hero, the villain being the rich speculator. Uh, that is the person who's um, the sort of soulless, heartless uh, capitalist who's buying and selling land from you know their their comfort in in a city or plantation or even in a foreign country, um, you know, and 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 making a killing all the while, kind of keeping squatters, uh, actual settlers from um, from setting down roots and and really building up uh, the country, uh, and so by championing squatters and uh, bashing speculators, these politicians, some of whom, by the way, were among the most notorious speculators of the age, um, and uh, uh, one figure who was central throughout the study, Robert J. Walker, is a great example of that. What uh, senator from Mississippi, later Treasury Secretary, and then Territorial Governor of Kansas. Um, but anyway, by by praising squatters and lashing into speculators, uh, these politicians are sort of bridging the class divide. But another really key part about uh, the effectiveness of, of the squatter democracy brand, this pro-squatter um, expansionism, 
is that the 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 uniformity of the rhetoric is uh, across sections uh, north and south is is remarkable. Um, you know, it, it, they're they're all basically playing singing from the same hymnal, or you know, they're talking about the the, the virtuous pioneer uh, who's contending against the elements, uh, facing all forms of danger, uh, not least the speculator, and and so whether uh, you know this is uh, politicians from Alabama or Mississippi or uh, Illinois or Michigan. They're, 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 they, the language is virtually identical. Um, basically, you know, taking up the cause of the squatters, uh, pleading for their case to get uh, preemption, or that is to be able to legalize their tenure on their land. And what you begin to see is that this is a very, very effective uh, means of allowing partisans from, from both sections to rally behind this this program of conquest and constituency building, um, framed essentially as as a forthright bid to to give uh, pioneering frontier farmers their due, but it's it's allowing them to sidestep uh, the issue of slavery. I should note too, you know, that uh, in terms of the creation of the squatter character, one one of the things I do in this book is look at how writers and artists are. Uh, elevating the the stature of the squatter in in um, in the culture, and so I'm I'm, I'm looking at at uh, short stories. I'm looking at uh, the emergence of of almanacs uh, in which the squatter plays a central role. Um, paintings, you know, the, the squatter starts to become a a major figure in in popular culture. And here's another important point: the the squatter character was not invented from whole cloth. There were actually thousands upon thousands of flesh and blood squatters in, you know, the expanding U.S. West. And, you know, these squatters also contributed to the creation of the character in their own way, um, largely through the, you know, hundreds of petitions that they're sending to to Congress uh, asking for uh, preemption laws and, um they're using phrases that are, are nearly identical to politicians. And it's actually hard to say, you know, who's, who, who's uh, the author of, of some of these tropes. They're, they're kind of mutually reinforcing. You know, you get this lingua franca among uh, statesmen and squatters. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's a powerful brand. Um, and, uh, and preemption is really kind of uh, the linchpin. Um, the, the 1830 Act, once it was actually uh, what they called at the time retrospective or retroactive, meaning it only applied to uh, to squatters who had taken their land, um, I think, in the previous year and planted a crop on it. Uh, but but that's that's it was limited to that. So basically, after um, the uh, uh, passage of the 1830 law, what that does is it creates an expectation that that new waves of settlers are going to be accorded the same privilege, the floodgates basically open. So that's, and that, and that's really when you see the, the, the petitions flooding in is saying, okay, we're out here in Indiana, you know, we're, we're taming the wilderness, we're building schools, roads, you know, the least you can do is give us these, uh, give us preemption uh, rights, you know, especially as every day we're 
uh, being harassed by speculators or the agents of speculators, that kind of thing. Um, so throughout the 1830s, the effort to renew preemption laws becomes a very, very unifying uh, force for for uh, Democrats and their Western constituents, um, up to the point where by 1841, they succeed in getting a permanent preemption, which means it's it's forward, from that point forward, it's not a matter of if, you know, if you've already settled your land, it's when you've settled, you're going to get preemption, you know. Um, if it's on the U.S. public domain, the surveyed portions of, of the domain. Uh, so maybe one other thing I'll say is that um, <laughs> this has huge implications for how the U.S. is growing. It's not just impacting the um, partisan landscape. It's impacting the sort of actual map of North America. Because when you, give, when you create a settle first, legalize later mentality, which emboldens settlers to stake claims to frontier land, you know, more and more people are going out there. Uh, their presence, in turn, is emboldening leaders to assert U.S. sovereignty over larger and larger domains. Um, and you know, you 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 really hear this, for example, in Polk, uh, James Polk's 1845 inaugural. He won the election of 1844 over Henry Clay, incidentally. But anyway, when he says the U.S. title to Oregon, which was at that point jointly shared with with Great Britain. He's saying it's clear and unquestionable and that American settlers were perfecting that title by occupying Oregon with their wives and children. Um, so it's almost like uh, politicians in, in D.C. and uh, American squatters out west are, are sort of marching in lockstep. And to the point of how this is unifying across sections, that the, the, the party leadership is very, very careful uh, to uh, pursue a program of parallel expansion um, which uh, kind of in that in the instance of of 1844 election, they put in the platform in the same line that the reoccupation of Oregon and reannex reannexation of Texas uh, are great American measures, and so they're, they they it's understood that Texas is going to be probably several slave states as was conceived at the time, and the the vast Oregon country, which extended I believe all the way up to Alaska uh, as as conceived at that time before the Compromise of 1846. Uh, th this was so that both North and South could rally behind a program of, of sort of squatter-driven expansion. Um, they overreached. The U.S.-Mexican War uh, <laughs> signaled a vast overreach, which we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll get to. <laughs> well, I appreciate you kind of pointing us toward the, the geographical expansion, expansive nature of the story of the squatter, both the real and rhetorical squatter, because it must have been a, a kind of a bear to wrestle with how to, how to narrate that. Um, such a sprawling story, and, and and you end up settling on kind of on kind of a dialectical methodology, where you kind of keep showing how the actions of squatters across the, the West um, influence the decisions of politicians back in D.C. and and vice versa. And you know, several of your chapters are set in Western places like the Mississippi Valley and Oregon, like you say, in California and Kansas. Um, yet, even in those chapters, you frequently then turn and look back at at the Capitol to examine how politicians are both influencing and, and also reacting to what's happening on the ground. And can you, can you say a bit about how you, how you settled on that kind of approach? Uh, sure. Yeah. So it's really on the ground in the West where you see this force, this political brand of squatter democracy escaping the control of those who um, self, self-servingly in, in, incubated it and unleashed it. Um, you see basically how squatters came to occupy this destabilizing position in national political life. Um, 
so we've ma- mainly been talking about how the squatter was a, a, a tried and true war car- horse for Democrats, um, basically up to the mid 1840s. And, um, you know, as the nation, as the nation uh, expanded in territory, the party's power grew. Um, this, uh, there, there were, there was friction um, prior in certain instances. The 1844 election was a good case where many wanted Martin Van Buren to, who had lost in 1840, to stand again. But uh, you know, annexationists from from the South and Southwest kind of maneuvered to get Polk in there, and already there was some some grumbling uh, about um, the direction the party was taking, but. But by carefully balancing the sectional interests with Oregon in, in the mix, or so Texas and Oregon, they kind of got over that hurdle to some degree. Um, the U.S.-Mexican War <laughs> uh, starts to really worry a number of Northern Democrats. Uh, they, they're asking, who's really driving this expansionist program? Um, you know, and, and it's starting to look a lot like uh, it's the slave power that that's got the upper hand, you know, and, and Polk himself, who, who essentially provoked the war, um, he, he himself is a slave holder. And, um, he, you know, so uh, with, you know, when the war is, is, is underway, um, the, 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 that's when tensions over Oregon start to become, uh, that, that's when, you know, the um, Oregon compromise is starting to take shape. And, and of course, many uh, Northerners and Northwesterners wanted Oregon all the way to the 54th parallel, uh, 54, 40 or fight. But uh, with the, you know, commencement of hostilities with Mexico, the U S sort of settles on the 49th parallel. Uh, it's because it doesn't want to have a war with great Britain and with um, Mexico at the same time. Um, so there's a lot of discontent uh, that that uh, that folks who had supported the annexation of the vast sort of landmass of, of Texas now are getting a uh, what a much diminished um, return for uh, in terms of Oregon. So when when David Wilmot in uh, August of uh, 1847 attaches a proviso, he, David Wilmot, a Democrat from Pennsylvania attaches a proviso to an appropriations measure related to the war that basically says any piece of territory and they and what they're what they're you know standing to gain from Mexico is basically and from Mexico is basically vast chunks of the west from uh from New Mexico all the way to California and you know some are even clamoring for all of Mexico but uh Wilmot says anything we acquire from Mexico cannot be slave land this is a bombshell um it, it 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 passes the House. It never passes the Senate, but it's it casts a shadow virtually over all policy related to westward expansion up and up until the Civil War, and so uh, the Wilmot Proviso um, gives impetus to it. Certainly uh, energizes uh, a free soil movement, which emerges to advocate for uh, Western lands free of cost for uh, small family farmers, white farmers. Um, you know, so now you've got uh, a pretty significant faction in the North saying explicitly the West should be free uh, 
and it should be for family farmers, certainly not for uh, enslavers and for plantations. And so this causes a major, major crisis for uh, the Democrats, um, because hedging on the question of slavery, especially in relation to expansion, had really become the default position. <laughs> Once Wilmot draws the line, Wilmot and allies draw their line in the sand, it's kind of hard not to take sides. Um, so, the, But the Democrats arrive at what they think at the time is an ingenious uh, formulation, and it's most famously articulated uh, by Lewis Cass at the end of 1847. That is the doctrine of popular sovereignty. Let the settlers out West decide for themselves. Let's not talk about this in Congress. It's too explosive, too divisive. So, so they punt. Um, once squatters begin to emerge as, uh, you know, the arbiters of, of slavery's, slavery's fate. They, 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 they cease to be predictable democratic partisans, or at least sort of, um, you know, the legs of manifest destiny, and they become a, a, an unpredictable disruptive force. So back to the question of the methodology and the, and the, the geography of all this, you know, so it, when it was a matter of giving squatters in the Mississippi Valley, both upper and lower. So, you know, from um, basically Michigan, you know, all in the old Northwest, all the way down to uh, Louisiana and, and, and Alabama and, and Mississippi, et cetera, Arkansas. At that, the, the, the squatter is a unifying figure. They're all talking in the same language They're and, and they're all advocating for preemption rights for squatters. Um, Oregon starts to become uh, Oregon's a, 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 an interesting case, and I have a chapter basically based in Oregon, uh, but it's it's sort of interspersed with with the uh, U.S. Mexican War um, and how that's complicating calculations. So, in, in, with with regards to Oregon, Oregon, as I noted in, eight, in the election of eighteen forty four, was paired with Texas, and everyone expected it would be free. Uh, Texas would be slave, um, but um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the compromise, as I noted, upset many, many Northerners. But the key thing here is that the Oregon compromise paved the way for Oregon to finally become, a, you know, organized as a U.S. territory. Now, because of this new uh, action among Northern Democrats to prevent uh, new lands in the West from being slave territory, um, it no longer seems uh, like a very acceptable proposition to Southerners, Southern Democrats, uh, especially that um, Oregon would be uh, this vast uh, territory would be in- entering the U.S. Uh, as a free, um, you know, free domain, free territory. So the Oregonians, I mean, sorry, the, the Southern Democrats, despite the fact that everyone had been sort of unified behind this this ex- parallel expansion in 1844, by the time the Oregon Territorial Bill comes up uh, in um, in 1848, Democrats are, 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 Southern Democrats are trying to block it. Um, Oregonians themselves are not, are, are not playing politics at this, at, in this way, in these terms. They are, are primarily interested in acquiring title to their lands. Uh, they, before they were even a U.S. territory, when it was still jointly held by the U.S. and Great Britain, they formed a provisional government. They banned slavery, uh, and they also you know, pr- created a provision to allow settlers to uh, get up to 640 acres 
which uh, was a massive, you know, much bigger than 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 preemption called for 160 acres. Uh, Homestead later on, you know, 160 acres. So this was uh, a, 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 a quite a novelty, and um, so they're focused on land, not slavery. Um, California, a, a similar thing happens. You, you know, the the, the statehood uh, the the statehood drop push happens basically after the U.S.-Mexican War and after the gold rush. You've got so many thousands and thousands of of Americans pouring in there, largely to mine um, for gold. But to uh, but many are seeing how fertile the land is and how favorable it would be for for farming, etc. And they start to become interested in in acquiring that land, um, and are are sort of extremely discouraged to see that much of it is 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 in the hands of of what had been uh, Mexican land grantees, and those grantees were supposed to be those grants were supposed to be honored under the terms of the of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the treaty that ended the U.S.-Mexican War. Anyway, uh, a big squatter movement <laughs> forms in California, principally centered around Sacramento, uh, ending in in a, a spectacular squatter riot uh, in August of 1850. Um, all of this is happening as Congress is deciding uh, on California statehood as part of the compromise measures of 1850. And again, most Southerners do not want California to enter the Union, especially since the terms of their entering the Union would be as a free state. Uh, they had had a statehood convention the previous fall and, and had decided on on entering the Union as um, as as a free state. So, but again, here you're seeing a disconnect because while the debates in Congress are 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 focused on on the issue of of, of slave versus non-slave. These 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 squatters, these self-styled squatters, capital S squatters in California, are uh, are are trying to get their title titles to these these Mexican lands, and they think it's uh, preposterous that the U.S. has fought a war, conquered this land from Mexico, and now um, they can't uh, they can't uh, you know occupy and improve it, and so it's 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 a disconnect now. Nowhere is the disconnect bigger than in Kansas. Um, Kansas is different from from Oregon and California in the sense that um, both uh, those cases I just described, both those places had sort of organically of their own accord banned slavery. Um, It just, you know, the provisional government in Oregon and then the statehood convention that kind of happened before anyone really knew what was going on in Washington, or very few people, and both banned slavery. And the and southern uh, southerners were um, very, very uh, incensed, sort of after the fact, and really um, made a lot of noise when it came to bringing those two places either in as ter- as a territory in the case of Oregon or as a state in California. In Kansas, the the, the territory was settled under the terms of popular sovereignty. So the democratic formulation that Cass first um, put forth or was a leading champion of um, is now gets enshrined in the Kansas-Nebraska Act as how Kansas is going to be settled. Stephen A. Douglas is the author of the Kansas-Nebraska Act and becomes sort of the um, poster child for for popular sovereignty or uh, quote unquote squatter sovereignty. It's going to be he becomes known in the 1860 campaign as a squatter king. And um, if anyone reads, the, you know, those who read the book will note 
that uh, at that point, um, any association with squatter is a pure liability. He can't run away from that label fast enough. But the squatter still still had some 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 clouts, you know, for for Democrats in 1854. Um, but the, so the so in the D.C. politicians led by Stephen A. Douglas, they passed the the uh, Kansas Nebraska Act, which repeals the Missouri Compromise, which had sort of had a line of where slavery could exist and where it couldn't. Kansas was over that line, uh, which previously under the compromise, uh, 3630 was um, was supposed to be free, but now it was going to be decided by, by the settlers. And they essentially, uh, you know, open the territory for settlement before any of the land has been settled, before most Indian titles have been cleared. And it's just a rush into the territory and so what happens in that vacuum? Squatter associations, claim clubs, they do what they always did. They form and they, they in a sort of, um, you know, extra legal, but, but you know, qu- quite formal way, um, are figuring out how to uh, survey uh, lands um, and register those claims and adjudicate between confi- conflicting claims. This, this has been something that's been going on for a long time in the frontier. But in Kansas... What you see is new is that these squatter associations begin writing into their bylaws a position on slavery. So, uh, you know, some that are affiliated with the South, a lot of the folks coming over from Missouri are basically saying overtly, you know, we will let no abolitionist into our claim club. Uh, We support slavery in this territory. You know, you might say that the biggest northern claim club was the New England Immigrant Aid Society, uh, which uh, formed in in Massachusetts and uh, facilitated the settlement uh, in uh, Kansas by by people who were by by no means abolitionists, uh, as it were, in the sense that they were activists around the slavery questions. You know, some were, but most were actually people who wanted land and they just so happened to be from the north and and you know, were opposed to slavery, but their main reason for going to Kansas was because it was very fertile land. They could make a new start. And the idea was if you got enough of those people there, uh, it would, um, you know, lead to a free state. Well, in that tinderbox that is Kansas, that's created by politicians in Washington, uh, these squatter associations, some allied with the North, some with the South, basically become proxies uh, fighting a guerrilla war, um, uh, over slavery, um, you, you know, um, and, and so, uh, it, it's, it's, it's the ultimate sign of, 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 of a huge disconnect between, uh, DC and, and the West. Um, so if, when you, when you look at, just to wrap up that, that question of the dialogue, dialectical, um, method, you, you know, you see, you see this transformation, this incredible transformation of the squatter from the darling of the Democratic Party and, and a land-taking agent of manifest destiny to basically, you know, the arbiter of slavery's fate, and and finally, uh, you know, into foot soldiers in 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 battles that pretty much sundered uh, the Democratic Party and and the nation. Can you, I'm on the edge of my seat. Can you take us up there to, to 1860? I mean, when you mentioned the Homestead Act, Buchanan gets it on his desk in 1860 and vetoes it, essentially a Buchanan to squatters, screw you moment. Um, um, why, how, how, how is the, the, that, that about, about, that about face moment there? How, does, how do we get there? Yeah. Um, so 
you know, one of the, again, the fascinating thing about, about really diving into the, the squatter politics on the ground um, in, in Kansas is that after, uh, you, you know, the, 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 the South, as they conceived it, had lost uh, their fight for, over Oregon and California, for a brief moment when, they, when it was understood by all sides that Kansas would be decided by, by, um, by squatters, by land-taking settlers, they, um, they, they made a bold bid to kind of embody the squatter. I mean, the, 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 uh, there was a, a notorious newspaper run by a Virginian, John Stringfellow, called The Squatter Sovereign, which was completely aimed at making uh, Kansas a slave state. And he's addressing his readers as squatters and telling them what the true, you know, the, the true squatter interests are uh, totally aligned with, with, with slaveholding. He himself brings more slaves into territory than almost anybody. And so, you know, they, they, they make a bold play for the squatter uh, and, um, and are, in, in, you know, and in, in, in their, the, the sort of infamous border ruffian manipulation of, of, of uh, elections and, and the thuggery and intimidation and things, uh, they're seen to uh, have um, D.C. Democrats at their back. Certainly, President Franklin Pierce, a, a classic doe face. Um, it's also, you know, can thought of that that Douglas himself is not an honest broker, but he's he's kind of turning his, his eye to a lot of the uh, of of the thuggery um, uh, among. The, the the border ruffians and and putting a lot of the blame on on the immigrant aid society the New England immigrant immigrant aid society um, anyway uh, as it turns out uh, through a whole series of complicated events you know Kansas does uh, become a, a free state uh, the South once again has 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 uh, lost uh, a, a territory um, and. Um, uh, they, they see the sectional balance is is falling apart, um, and uh, they're you know are becoming much more vociferous about about uh, you know possibly leaving the union. Um, this occasions a a significant rupture in the Democratic Party. You know, from what I've been describing, it's been gathering over some time, but. By the time you have 1860, the election, the Democrats are fielding two candidates, uh, you know, John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky, who was uh, Buchanan's vice president, was very much a favorite of, of the South. Buchanan of Pennsylvania was also very much in the doughface mold and, um, you know, many in the North believed was was way too sympathetic to the South and, in fact, was, was really uh, ready to countenance um, a, a lot of the... Uh, shenanigans that were uh, happening on the ground, uh, the deadly shenanigans, uh, it, it, you know, committed uh, in Kansas territory. And, and so anyway, uh, and Douglas is running as uh, the, the, the sort of northern candidate. Um, he gets branded the squatter king. Uh, he, 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 he's forced into a position where he has to make these very, very fine distinctions between uh, you know, popular sovereignty and squatter sovereignty. Um, it, it, previously, there would have been no reason for a Democrat to even make that distinction. Uh, but once the squatter 
has has become uh, you know such a a, um, a, a uh, sort of boogeyman to the to the South, uh, and 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 interestingly, Lincoln and the Republicans are also picking up. They know that Douglas has a huge problem because he still needs some Southern support. So every time they mention squatters and squatter sovereignty and and you know what what he means by uh by those terms and how how uh the slavery question should get answered um they know it's a problem for for him the 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 issue is the south is never it, you know the reason why popular sovereignty can't work for the south is because with can't work with the south is because they're not going to accept any result that uh yields anything other than the capacity for them to carry their human property into a territory so uh, you know, they might have for a time, you know, in Kansas, been been willing to at least give lip service to squatter sovereignty, popular sovereignty, and try to embody the squatter and, and, and turn the squatter to their favor. But when it turns out they don't, that does not work, um, you know, they're, they're both going to consider, you know, Kansas as a free state as illegitimate, and they're going to consider the squatter, which, you know, the the character, the figure has burned them now on so many occasions. It's it's uh, uh, a a um, just a universal ill in their mind. Uh, on the side of Lincoln and the Republicans, um, they 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 make a lot of hay out of out of squatter sovereignty because they they keep trying to pin Douglas down on. You know they they understand that the Constitution does call for uh, for Congress to um, adjudicate or administer territories, and 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 precedent too had a had a had a bearing on on whether or not you know Congress could could exercise that authority. Uh, Douglas essentially is ready to dispatch with with those precedents and with um, you know with with the the, the letter of the Constitution. And and he keeps saying, you know, there's nothing more democratic than letting the people decide. Uh, and so, even for example, in the face of the Dred Scott decision, which basically, uh, you know, validated the Southern view that there could be no curbs on bringing slavery into the West, Douglas is Douglas says, you know, this isn't really a problem because essentially, if if local populations don't want slavery, uh, they can they can they can bar it themselves. Um, you know, and, and so it's really kind of taking an axe to to the, the, the many of the pillars of, of of you know our constitutional democracy to make his argument work. And and every time Lincoln reminds him of of just you know all the inconsistencies and uh, all the damage that that this 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 popular sovereignty formulation has wrought, uh, it uh, it's it's very much Douglas's disadvantage. And being the squatter king is is not a title he wears proudly. He he. he you know, he can't get away from the squatter label fast enough by 1860. And as far as Buchanan and the and the Homestead Act, thanks for bringing that up, because that is a uh, that, that, that is that is truly a signal of the death knell of 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 uh, squatter democracy. When, you know, when free land uh, is vetoed uh, by a Democratic uh, president, a Jacksonian, a guy who'd been there, you know, or in the early days, 1830s, as a senator from Pennsylvania, you know, beating the squatter drum as loudly as anybody, um, by 1860 is, uh, you know, is 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 vetoing what would have been the crowning jewel, the crown, you know, the the crowning achievement of this this, this entire force of squatter democracy, um, basically because he knows that that Southerners are are very against it. I mean, because if you're going to uh, award 
160 acres of free land to settlers, you know, you're, you're really favoring a nimble small family farmer to, you know, uh, some kind of, um, of, of, of plantation. And, uh, so, um, there's really no better way of betokening the, the sort of end of an era than, than, than the Homestead Act, that the veto of the Homestead Act by, by Buchanan in 1860. One thing that we haven't talked much about, but that your book foregrounds is that the squatter project was, you know, both in intention and in effect, uh, white supremacist. Um, and, and, but you should also show that, that despite all the violence and all the plunder, it, it never fully succeeded in making the multiracial West a white man's country. Why not? Yeah. And this is, this is important uh, because, you know, you, you, you see the heavy hand of the state uh, favoring um, favoring white settlement of the West, uh, you know, the, between lotting the, um, the, the sort of bold Anglo-Saxon pioneer. In fact, even the, you know, the, the famous uh, Democratic Review article from the summer of 1845 that, that gave the term manifest destiny into the vernacular talked about uh, an, an irresistible army of Anglo-Saxon immigrants armed with the plow and the rifle and marking its trail with schools and colleges, courts and representative halls, mills and meeting houses, um, an irresistible army of Anglo-Saxon immigrants. You know, this, this um, was very much about opening the floodgates of settlement to white Americans through, you know, land reforms like preemption through Indian removal uh, and really bellicosity toward uh, uh, rival empires, neighboring nations. And you see, and when you get into the documents, you know, when you see the tr- the so-called treaty negotiations, I, I focus in one uh, uh, instance on the 1833 Treaty of Chicago and the, and the meeting house there. And the day after day of cajoling of, you know, on the one hand, sweet talking, uh, you know, the Potawatomi's uh, and, and, and Ottawa's um, and, and Chippewa's to, to uh, cede their ancestral lands to just, un, you know, to, to just pure threats of, of violence. You know, um, your great father is the greatest warrior any of you has ever seen. He'll, he'll bring his cannon. He'll do to you what he did to the, the sacks and foxes, you know, in the, in the Black Hawk War. Um, it, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's it's you see the state power the the power of the state being brought to bear very much in, in, in you know to the benefit of of white settlers, um, and then there are, of course I mentioned the Black Hawk War and and the, the battles against the Seminoles you know the, the, there was plenty of just outright violence. Now along with this you've got a lot of resistance. And what's uh, one of the reasons why I focused on the the, the meeting house in, for the Treaty of Chicago of 1833 is because there was a Potawatomi leader uh, named Leopold Pokagan, um, who even in the meetings themselves is is pushing back really hard against the U.S. commissioners who are are trying to get him to cede tribal lands in basically what's um, the St. Joseph Valley of of St. Joseph River Valley of Michigan, and uh, you know, he, he, he persists, you know, so this treaty gets signed against, against his will. Um, and, uh, the, the, the removal of the Potawatomi's gets held up for quite some time. And, um, he himself never ceases to find ways to try to 
you know, resist to the point where he actually uses some of the treaty money and is able to acquire some land in his, you know, in that same St. Joseph River Valley, uh, and 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 sort of put together a, a, a domain which, to this day, is actually um, a uh, an important sort of site for the uh, Pokagon band of uh, Potawatomi's, who are uh, by interestingly, it was not until 1994 they were recognized um, as as a separate tribe, I believe, but. You know, so there's some real creative resistance. There's, there's, the, you know, the the Black Hawk and the Sacks and Foxes don't just, uh, you know, accept that they cannot have access to their 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 you know perennial planting sites and and homelands. Uh, the the Seminoles, you know, give the the U.S. a uh, you know a, a huge fight uh, that lasts years. Um, you know, the, the Cherokee story is quite famous. I mean, they're, they're, they're legal maneuvering. They're very, very skilled legal maneuvering that result yields, you know, major landmark Supreme Court cases, etc. And then, you know, I focus on on uh, African American uh, folks. You know, uh, formerly enslaved people like uh, a, a man named Frank McWhorter and his wife Lucy, who who purchased their freedom it in Kentucky and make their way. Uh, with their family to Pike County, Illinois, uh, you know, facing every hazard uh, from, you know, the slave catchers who who were, you know, known for even capturing uh, free people and and saying that they were uh, escaped slaves. And, you know, Illinois, even though it's free, has all kinds of of barriers to black settlement. They want, uh, you know, a bond of, of hundreds of dollars in order to settle in the first place, and and once the once uh, 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 you know black people are are there, can't vote, can't have basic rights. Um, but Frank and Lucy McWhorter and their family, they 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 make it despite all of that, uh, and uh, found them a, a found a, a farm, a thriving farm, and uh, then a town, a frontier town of New Philadelphia. Which is incredible. Um, I end the, the book with, by looking at a, a, a settler named George Bush. Um, people think, oh, George Bush, and it, you know, not just George Bush, George W. Bush, uh, but uh, he uh, similarly, uh, you know, a, a person who who uh, is in Missouri, African American, um, is one of the pioneers to Oregon. But he can't. When they get to the territory, he. Uh, knows there's been a ban from that 1843 ban by the provisional government of, of African-American settlement. Um, I, actually, I don't think I mentioned that. While they were banning slavery, they also banned African-American uh, settlement. So he goes up to Washington territory and has becomes one of the original American pioneers in, in Washington territory. So despite every obstacle um, and, and every bit of, uh, of, of, you know, putting the hand on the scale to favor white settlement. So many people resisted, and uh, you know, the the multiracial West that uh, uh, w- you know was a reality then remained a reality, and um, I think that's a hugely uh, important part of the story, and and shows the power of of of, of you know that that plural multiracial society. 
The political history of Jacksonian America, you know, is such well-trod territory. There's shelves and shelves and shelves of very big, famous books. Yet you found something new and important to say about it. How, how did you come to this project? You know, this one, this project, um, it's kind of interesting to think about. It, it came about from just having come across a very, very uh, random fact. That was I saw that the Department of the Interior was created in 1849, and it just something about that date. I thought, what, what was it about? How did that happen? What, why did the Department of the Interior come about? Uh, and, um, you know, just needless to say, I, I uh, came to see through that fairly mundane question, the uh, outsized role of, of squatters in sort of the uh, rise and fall of, of, of Jacksonian democracy, the conquest of manifest destiny and, and um, the, the sundering of the country in, in the lead up to the Civil War. I hope in the uh, the weeks and months ahead, you're kept very, very busy um, sharing this book with, with future readers and uh, getting out there. But uh, when the dust settles, I wonder, is there a project in the offing that you, that you look forward to, to getting to? Well, one project that I've been gathering some string for uh, and, and I'm pretty excited about it, it, it involves the... Uh, Great raft log jam uh, on this Louisiana Texas borderline on the Red River, basically Red and Atchafalaya rivers. Um, it was centuries old, uh, naturally occurring, um, extended hundreds of miles, and sort of defined uh, the uh, ecology of the region. And uh, many believed it was just unremovable and. Um, uh, but Henry Shreve developed a snag boat, uh, Shreve of, of Shreveport fame. They named that town after him, that city, um, and uh, attacked it in the 1830s and began removing it. And when the, the log jam gets removed, um, it, it changes, it transforms the, 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 the region. Um, it sort of paves the way for the removal of the Caddo people and the rise of the Cotton Kingdom and factors in, in the Civil War as well. Um, so... That's uh, that that's that's a story I'm I'm eager to tell. Wonderful. Well, for the time being, this book again is Dangerous Ground: Squatters, Statesmen, and the Antebellum Rupture of American Democracy. It's available now from Oxford University Press. Its author is, and my guest has been, John Suval. John, thanks so much for your time and for this book. Brian, thank you very very much. <laughs>